Audio Conversation with Nick Redfern, recorded June 17th, 2011. Uh, Once again, I am deeply honored to have Nick on as a guest, talking about yet another book, this book titled The Real Men in Black. And, as the title clearly indicates, it's all about the men in black phenomena, the MIB phenomena. And uh, don't be confused with the Hollywood stuff. Uh, This is very different, very elusive, very, very strange stuff. I give Nick a lot of credit. He goes where a lot of other researchers would not. And at the same time, he remains very open-minded, and he's eager to engage in talking about this stuff. And talks about it in a way that, i got to say, I relate to, and it resonates very closely with uh, the way my mind works and the way my mind attempts to wrap itself around these tricky, amorphic, hard-to-grasp concepts. This interview is about an hour and 45 minutes long, and uh, I think we cover an awful lot in that short amount of time. Please enjoy. Hey, Nick, thanks so much for saying yes to this interview. Well, you're welcome. Um, uh, I appreciate you having me on the show, Mike. Thanks. Good, good. And the new book is about the men in black phenomena. Correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it, w- one of the things that's sort of fascinating about this to me is that there's a, you know, the men in black phenomena seems like something that's part of the UFO lore, that's part of something mm-hmm. that's, that's uh, uh, you know, behind us. You know, you look sort of back in the dusty pages of old UFO books and you see these reports. What's going on right now with the phenomena? Mm. Well, this... This is actually one of the reasons, Mike, why I wanted to write the book was because you just sort of hit the nail on the head. A lot of people assume that the men in black is kind of like, you know, the contactee or, um, you know, vehicle interference cases and things like that, where we hear a lot of stories from the past, but we don't hear many from the present day. But one of the things that I've found as an author is, you know, when you write books, etc., people contact you with their experiences. And one of the things that sort of stood out for me over the years was that probably not on a massively, you know, massively large number, but maybe five or six times a year, I would get reports of modern day encounters and stories with the men in black, which were as sort of weird and as creepy and as off the wall as they were back in the 50s and 60s. And I began to realize that rather than being just sort of a mystery of the past that's gone away, it's more the case that today the subjects, I guess, kind of exist to some extent under the radar, but the reports, or the, or the encounters at least, are no less. What I think has actually happened is that when you have movies like the Men in Black movies, the Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones films, you know, if people say today they've been visited by the Men in Black, people kind of roll their eyes and say, you know, you've overdosed on too many Hollywood films. So what I think actually happened in the present days, that reports are no less, the encounters are no less, but the willingness of the witnesses to come forward is perhaps tarred to some extent by the fear that, you know, they're just going to be seen as jumping on the bandwagon of Hollywood, if you like. So they tend to stay more quiet about the experiences. And But when, you know, I sort of spoke to a lot of people and then, I guess, you know, took them into my confidence and vice versa, etc., and um, explained that, you know, I was writing a book that, didn't obviously want to portray them as nuts or, you know, just overdosing on Hollywood films, but wanting to treat them respectfully and relate their accounts, then more people came forward and said, hey, you know, yeah, you're quite willing to use the story. So that was one of the main reasons I wrote the book, was to demonstrate that it's not just a historical issue. It's very much one that's still ongoing. And one that's, I agree, as equally elusive as it's ever been. Uh, Oh, yeah. 
and there's something, and I say this all the time about this phenomena, uh, there's something about it that mimics, uh, I just guess I want to say like the spooky campfire story. And yeah. and, and by, by saying that, I mean there's something sort of seductively strange about it, as well as they tend to be kind of short. You know, that it's not like people have ongoing interactions with the men, uh, men in black phenomena. No, you're right. And, you know, and then they, they are curious and spooky in a way that remains unexplained. Yeah, this is... This is one of the things about the Men in Black. You know, for the most part, I think people, certainly people who are new to ufology, you know, just to sort of hark back to the, the Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones films, um, people's views on the Men in Black, I think, are to a large degree, people who are new to the subject particularly, shaped by the film. In You know, the idea that there's this super secret agency deeply hidden within the government that goes around silencing UFO witnesses. When you actually speak... To the real witnesses to the men in black, you actually get a weirder, and a word I often use with the in relation to the men in black is creepy, kind of like a creepy story, which seems to actually take these cases, I won't say totally away from nuts and bolts UFOs, but takes it, pushes it towards like another category, veering upon what, you know, we would call the paranormal, even the supernatural, you know, however you define it. The men in black seem to straddle both realms, you know, the physical 3D world and a far stranger sort of realm of existence and, and modus operandi, if you like. And I think that's one of the reasons why the phenomenon is so enduring and, and addictive, if you like, because it, it is elusive. It sort of opened, opens doorways to other realms without sort of negating the, the nuts and bolts angle as well. Now, the folks who migrate to my site and find my site, I, I find are pretty well dialed and pretty well informed on this. So uh, I, I'm quite sure anyone who's made it to this podcast will have a pretty good working knowledge of the men in black. But can you just give a checklist of the things that would appear in the in the reports? I mean, the men in black is kind of uh, you know a big umbrella term, and there's probably yeah. variations within there. But can you give just yeah. a checklist of what, what might one might consider a classic MIB experience? Yeah, well, you know, again, I think, you know, many people's image of the men in black is sort of tough-looking, you know, G-men, you know, FBI guys who can handle themselves in a tough situation. You know, they're sort of six-footers built and athletic and, you know, wearing the suits, the hats, etc., etc. The reality, again, is, is quite different. Most of the men in black, the really weird men in black reports, involve entities, which is probably the best way of describing them, that usually around sort of five feet to five feet, five and a half feet tall, very pale looking, almost kind of like anemic. Um, their bodies and build is often described as being not just slim, but almost to the point of anorexia or emaciation. Um, a number of witnesses have, have literally used the words that they seem to have thyroid-type eyes, like bulging eyes, that they can see hiding behind these sort of wraparound sunglasses. So in other words, the men in black almost seem non-human or inhuman in some fashion. Um, this, of course, has led to speculation, you know, are they alien entities or some sort of non-human entity in their own right, but one that looks enough like us to wear with the, you know, the fedora hat, the wraparound sunglasses, the trench coat with a big high-turned-up collar, they, and, you know, by operating mainly at night, they can move amongst us without sort of betraying too much of their 
real appearance, which is, you know, a controversial theory um, by any standards. But that is what most of the people report, that, you know, that they look creepy. There are even weirder reports where the MIB seem to have to be wearing badly fitting wigs and makeup to try and make themselves look even more human as if they you know they totally lack any bodily or facial hair uh, not even like telltale stubble um and you know they try to darken their skins which in some respects i guess you could argue harks almost to sort of mactonis crypto terrestrials theory and even weirder you know in, in the film the men in black and i think people's natural assumption is that you know, that the men in black warn people not to talk about their UFO experiences. And that certainly is a part of the encounter. But often they get offered a tangent and ask just the weirdest questions that don't seem to have any direct bearing on the UFO encounter at all. And some occasions, the encounter itself is of no significance. It can just be like the witness saw a weird light in the sky one night, happened to tell their next door neighbor, and then 24 hours later, at, you know, 10 o'clock at night, the men in black arrive. You know, there's no abduction or landing involved. It's just an anomalous light, which makes you wonder why on earth would they turn up. So the, I think the most important or significant thing I could say about the men in black is that everything about them sort of screams one word, and that's illogical. You know, it's, there's nothing logical about the MIB beyond the fact that it seems that intimidation and, and inducing fear is sort of a staple part of their entire agenda, if you like. And this illogical thing, you know, ties directly into Chris O'Brien's hypothesis of the trickster. Yeah. Where, where, the, where the actual act of, of, like, a human interacting with something so illogical forces them to, to rethink their own paradigm in a way. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's important you bring up the trickster angle because, I mean, I, I have a whole chapter in the book on the way in which the MIB seem to be linked with the trickster world. I mean, I'll give you a classic and, and definitively uh, weird case. One of the people I interviewed um, for the book was Reagan Lee, who lives in Oregon, and like, she does a lot of Fortean-based research. Sure, and, and, of... and I've interviewed Reagan on this, on this okay, post. Cool. We have, we, Reagan and I, it's very curious, Reagan and I have a lot in common. Oh, good. Well, Reagan told me and related a number of accounts to me concerning um, MIB encounters, and without doubt, certainly um, one of the weirdest ones she told me um, involved, or it was a case basically where um, the, the witness uh, contacted uh, Reagan and um, she related the details of how a UFO encounter had occurred in uh, an area of eastern California called Owens Valley, which is east of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And this was on uh, what was described as like a commune. And um, a UFO encounter occurred late at night. This very large UFO was seen that was sort of dancing around the area. And shortly afterwards, lo and behold, a couple of days later, two men appeared on, at the commune. Now, bear in mind, you know, this was a commune. Everybody sort of hung out in T-shirts and shorts and whatever. But these two guys turned up in black business suits, looked like the typical men in black. But as well as asking questions about the UFO encounter, which is what you would expect, they then sort of went off at a complete tangent and asked if there was anything unusual about the taste of the milk that the, the cows on the commune were provided, uh, which sounds a very weird question to ask. You know, it's like you, you begin with a question about 
tell me about the UFO encounter, then you want to know how the milk tastes on the on the commune. Um, now, Reagan at first wondered if it, this had anything to do with cattle mutilations, but one of the things I pointed out to her, you know, originally being from England and having an interest in the trickster phenomenon, one of the areas I've deeply dug into is, you know, the origins of fairy lore and things like that. You know, not the sort of the cartoonish imagery that people have of little, you know, beautiful female figures with ethereal little wings or whatever, you yeah, know, but the original would, stories. Yeah, that would dance in, of, in Fantasia in the Disney movie. Yeah, you know, the, the original fairies were described as like semi-malevolent, semi-benevolent, tricksterish, shape-shifting creatures. Now, within English folklore, there's a legend of a creature known as the Boggart, which um, is like a definitive fairy-type creature, which was known for souring milk. And Scotland had a equally a milk-hating creature known as the Bogle. And in, even in Latvian culture, there's a creature called the Loma, uh, which is, appears as a beautiful woman who steals babies and maliciously taints milk. So all these creatures from hundreds of years ago are definitive tricksters. And then we have the men in black talking arriving in a UFO encounter just not too long ago, inquiring about tainted milk in connection with a UFO case when the MIB are already linked with tricksters. So, you know, I think, th I mean, this is just one example of many. And I think what it demonstrates is that the men in black, whatever they are, they seem to have not just a deep knowledge of, but also a deep connection with very ancient phenomena. You know, this is not a new phenomenon. And, you know, we can, as I said, uh, pinpoint connections, if you like, with um, tales of fairies and the boggart from centuries ago that seem to focus upon the very areas that the men in black are still asking questions about to this day. Yeah, I'm, I, the, I love the trickster phenomena as a hypothesis uh, yeah. to, to try to you know create a big umbrella thing because it's mm -hmm. uh, it's it's on one sense it it matches so tidy, and yeah. on another sense you know the implication is that um, instead of being you know aliens from a distant planet on a metal mm -hmm. spaceship, it, it tells a different story. It, it creates a story that somehow they've been interacting with us uh, mm -hmm. as a companion almost throughout our our, our human history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I point, one of the things I point out in the book is that although, you know, the men in black as they appear today are very much sort of products of the late 40s, early 50s onwards, you can actually go back into the early 40s and, and 30s and find similar reports. You can even go back centuries um, and find reports where, for example, alchemists, you know, when, when alchemy was at its height, people trying to turn base metal into more precious metals, you know, using magical rituals and rites, etc., that on a number of occasions, alchemists claim to have been contacted, or, you know, late at night there'll be a knock on the door and this mysterious person dressed in black would turn up and, and impart details of, you know, the secrets of alchemy, but warn them of, you know, the potential hazards of delving into these sorts of areas. And, of course, you know, the very idea of people turning up in black outfits and warning people about the hazards of getting involved in 40 and related issues is a staple part of what's going on today. It's just, you know, the, the men in black motif is a modern day one, but the sort of the cultural imagery of the mysterious visitor in black, you know, or just the mysterious visitor period in relation to anomalous events is, is a very ancient one.
you're trying to wrap my head around the, the men in black thing. I mean, I know this has been explored in, in, mm-hmm. in literature, but um, they tend to drive kind of outdated cars that are immaculate yeah. and, and perfect. And they tend to dress in outdated clothes that mm-hmm. look brand new the illusion is that you know perhaps they you know pilfered the you know the men's clothing store uh, at some point in the distant past as well as uh, you know as stole a, a you know big black sedan in the distant past yeah. and then they just keep on using that same car over and over again even though now you know that it's 2011 that sedan may look ridiculous are they still showing up in the like an outdated cars and outdated outfits yeah, I mean, th- this is one of the weird things about the Men in Black. It's almost as if, although they're trying to silence people, they're still they're going out of their way, in some respects, to be noticed and be remembered because, you know, people have said, well, they seem to fit in, you know, with our society because of the clothing. And, you know, you, do, you can go to any city and see some guy dressed in a black suit and tie. You know, you'll find him anywhere. But you very seldom these days find people in any city, pretty much anywhere in the Western world, you know, wearing a Homburg or Fedora-type hat. You know, hats for men have pretty much gone out of fashion. Um, and yet the MIB are still reported wearing them. I mean, for example, one of the classic cases uh, I re- recounted in the book uh, actually came from Chris O'Brien only from a couple of years ago. And Chris investigated a case in Colorado where an abductee, a woman, began to have male interference, male not arriving, etc. And so one day she sort of she had a, like a long driveway. The, the mailbox was sort of quite a long way down the, the driveway. So she sort of staked out the um, mailbox on the safety of the house um, and just watched carefully. And two guys pulled up, and she described the only way she could describe them to Chris. And, and Chris said, well, can you come up with a better description? But she described them as being like the Blues Brothers, sort of black suits, skinny ties, and, and the fedora hat. And, and they rifled her mailbox and had this old black car. Um, so, in other words, you know, they seem to be, on the one hand, attempting allegedly to silence us, but on the other hand, to be so memorable in the process because they're just so weird and, and they stand out. So, um, in other words, yes, the, 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 the sort of mode of dress, etc., hasn't really changed. And, you know, in, in, in the U.S., certainly, people talk about seeing them turning up in old-style Lincolns and Chevys and things like that or whatever. In England, it's sort of old-style Jaguar cars, um, but they always seemed slightly out of time and, you know, where you would look twice. You might not look three times and think, wow, that's really weird, but you would look twice and think, wow, you know, that's a cool-looking old car. And then you see the guy get out with the old hat on. You You would look twice, but you might not think it was too weird to where you would ponder on it for the next two weeks, but you probably would remember it for a day or two, you know, if you happen to see these guys. Uh, speaking of uh, the Blues Brothers, uh, Dan Aykroyd is quite the UFO enthusiast. Yeah. Have you heard his uh, Men in Black story? No, I actually haven't, no. I have a DVD of him that was done by David Sarita called Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs. And... Um, you know, it's basically just him on camera, you know, a one-on-one interview where he, he responds to some questions. And um, he talks about an event that took place when he was producing a documentary television show for the Sci-Fi Channel called Out There. Yeah, you, let me just play you this clip of Dan Aykroyd talking on that documentary. It's interesting, and at the end, I'll, uh, I'll get your comments. Yeah, um, I got it all queued up here, and here we go. 
Well, what happened was we, we, we sold the show to, uh, to Sci-Fi Channel, and uh, it was called Out There, and I basically interviewed all of the people that I admired uh, in various fields of study, like uh, Colin Andrews from the Crop Circle Movement, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, the expert on cattle mutilations, John Mack. Um, and let me just put a pin in things right there, because John Mack has taken the study of abductions UFOs right out through the other uh, other side, and he's going, yes, we know they're here, we know they're coming, we know people have been taken, we know there's experimentation going on, we know people have been told about agendas. What we now have to do is use that as a key and as a motivation to socially transform this planet to a more peaceful, more loving, more tolerant state. So his movement, the, the movement for social change, has just accepts as a fact abductions, UFOs, interplanetary uh, 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 intervention, and what he's doing is taking it out through the positive side of it and saying, now we must use it to, to socially transform, and I think his message is great. But I talked to him, I talked to the Allagash guys who were taken in the canoe on that trip in Pennsylvania. I, um, I mean, and I, the last show, the last show we did, I had both Bassett, who uh, has the, the UFO time clock, and then Greer. Both Bassett and Greer were there. They were my two guests for the day. Well, the show was canceled that afternoon. And um, I was outside in, before I knew it was canceled, in between the interviews. And uh, I was outside, and Britney Spears called me because she wanted to, me to appear on Saturday Night Live with her. And so I picked up, I was outside having a cigarette. The phone rang. Uh, I, I, oh, Brittany, how you doing? Oh, sure, of course I will. I turned away like this. I turned back, and there was a black Ford across the road, a black Ford sedan. And I, I was trying to look at the plate, and the plate seemed kind of like fuzzy, and I was, you know, definitely a police car. And two guys were there, and a big, big, tall guy got out of the back seat, and he stood in the street on, um, on 42nd Street, it was. We, we were at 42nd Street and 8th Avenue, and he looked right at me. And literally, I mean, I was on the phone. Hey, oh, sure, of course I'd like for the show. Saw the Ford, went back like this, turned back like a half second later, and it was gone. And that car did not go past me. It did not make a U-turn because I would have seen 42nd Street. I would have seen that thing take a U-turn and go away. That car vanished. That car was a cloaked vehicle of some type. And whether this was like a warning to me because the guy got out of the backseat gave me a real dirty look. That car vanished. I know what I saw. And... uh you know, I, I, it, was, it was just this fast. It was, oh, hi, Brittany, sure. Oh, of course, I'd love to. Do. God gives me a dirty look. Oh, well, sure, car gone. That's what happened. And uh, then two hours later, uh, we were told we were not to continue taping, and the show was canceled, and none of them would air. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Was that, uh, was that an MIB experience? Was it a technology associated with some of these beings that are visiting that wanted to warn me off or that wanted to give me verification that I was on the right track. I don't know. But I do know I, I, did, I did turn back a second later, and I, you know, it takes so long for an automobile accelerating from zero to 40 miles an hour to reach the corner of 8th Avenue and 42nd Street going past me and then pulling a U-turn and going out towards Times Square. I would have seen that car, and I looked around. I, mean, I was looking for that then. It was gone. So... Um, I don't know. The tapes exist. I have them. We're going to try to repackage them. We might put them out on DVD. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think that the thing that sort of stands out for me is sort of the illogical behavior of the MIB. 
and the fact that, you know, you said he had like a hulking form. You know, this is, although a lot of the, the MIB reports are sort of skinny, pasty guys, um, the one thing that stands out is like a physical abnormality or a physical issue that, that looks unusual and makes you look twice at them. And the fact that they, you know, they behave in such weird ways as if they're just totally unconnected with our sort of normal conventions and, and, and ways of life. So, you know, I think um, in that respect, I mean, this, his report sort of falls directly into that category. You know, it's not just somebody tailing him or whatever. It, it's, you know, it has the sort of the classic aspects of, of, of just illogical high strangeness attached to it. Yeah, and um, the uh, the folks who just made the uh, there's a documentary that's out called Eyes of the Mothman. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. they talk about um, meeting someone as they were filming there at the in Point Pleasant, and and a car came up, and two people came up, and he said that they they weren't actually men in black; they were dressed in uh, polo shirts. But they they came up and it sounds like they were like socially awkward in a way, like they stood Mm -hmm. too close together and they asked uh, a series of questions like, what are you doing? You know, why are you filming? And then the questions got more and more illogical and uh, and they would contradict themselves in the middle of the conversation. And so that sort of struck me that there there is this phenomenon. Here's someone who's actually creating a documentary about about an elusive event. And I don't know whether they just, you know, went to the wardrobe department and grabbed a different costume that day or if the documentary filmmakers were just, you know, seeing something that might not have been there. But when they tell the story, it is kind of curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, again, this is sort of like a classic example that demonstrates, I mean, you know, the eyes of the Mothman is relatively new. You know, it's like this is a classic example that however we define the men in black, they're still being seen and they're still sort of asking these off-the-wall questions that until you dig deep, you don't really have a full understanding, if ever, of the what it actually is they're, they're digging into or why they're asking specific questions. And... Uh, I think, you know, what this, as I pointed out at the very beginning, I think all this points out that the phenomenon is still very much ongoing, but because it is sort of um, just soaked, if you like, saturated in, in weirdness and just illogical activity and weird questions, that this is why, you know, it hasn't sort of received the treatment that I think the subject deserves. It, it still is, I think, unfortunately seen as very much... Oh, you know, something from the days of the Cold War when the FBI would send people out because they thought UFO groups were communists or whatever. You know, it, it actually goes far beyond that angle, even though I think that angle is a part of the overall mystery. Now, one of the things I was impressed with that you looked into in the book was the occult angle of all this. Mm-hmm. And that is something that um, I find, you know, some people have tackled that, in, including mm-hmm. you, in the, in the UFO lore. But I find that's something that just kind of gets brushed under the rug in most of the literature. But I find well, that, that it shows up all the time mm-hmm. when I talk to witnesses. Yeah, the problem, the biggest problem I have with people in the nuts and bolts ETH, UFO research community, isn't the fact that they research that angle and believe that aliens are visiting. I don't care. I don't personally agree with that. I think the phenomenon is far stranger. But it doesn't bother me in the slightest that somebody thinks literal nuts and bolts aliens from Zeta Reticuli are visiting here. What I have a problem is when they become selective with the data and ignore the high strangeness because it doesn't fit comfortably with the ETH. And I think that's that's a classic thing with the men in black. You know, there, there are a lot of people who 
adhere to the idea that aliens are visiting us who will tell you that the men in black are government personnel keep it, trying to keep the lid on the fact that the government, you know, has UFO wreckage and they're trying to prevent us getting too close to the truth, etc., etc. But when you, you're quite right, when you look into the history of men in black law, it's absolutely, you know, dominated by the world of the occult and by people who had immersed themselves in the occult. I mean, arguably, the, the one man more than any other who kicked off the Men in Black mystery was Albert Bender, um, who in the early 50s set up a UFO group called the International Flying Saucer Bureau. And Bender was an unusual character. Um, his life was sort of steeped in ufology, but also in the occult, paranormal, supernatural, in both reality in, the, in both real life and in the world of fiction as well he was a sort of voracious reader of, of uh, horror and you know gothic horror type stories but he was also a dabbler of ouija boards and was heavily involved in uh, a paranormal phenomena and he set up the ifsb with a view to investigating ufos the group um, essentially went far beyond i think Bender's expectations and chapters were set up in England, Australia, or around the world, and it had a massive following. Um, Bender then claimed, when he not short, not long afterwards, he actually closed the IFSB down under mysterious circumstances and alluded to a strange visit from three men in black, who allegedly told him the truth about the the UFO puzzle, but warning to get out of the subject, which he actually did. He vanished. You know, a lot of people say, "I'm leaving the subject," and they come back. You know, years later, Bender didn't, other than just to set the record straight with a book in 1962, and then just vanished from the scene for good. Um, and in Bender's um, story, although it was alluded to in the 50s that he'd been silenced by sort of classic G-men, when you read his own version of events, the the entities in question sound far more occult-based. For example, he said that when when he was at the height of his UFO research in the early 50s, which I should point out was undertaken from his stepfather's house in an attic. He, uh, Bender lived in the attic of his stepfather's house and had painted sort of grotesque images of monsters and demons on the walls of the attic. So, you know, he was living in an environment which potentially had the ability to sort of, you know, almost call in the paranormal world. And I, I do believe that, you know, when we go looking for these things, they recognize we're looking and, and the the phenomena can get its grips into us. And I think Bender, sort of living in this little attic, surrounded by, you know, dominated by the occult, the phenomena did get its grips into him. And he describes the MIB that he saw as being almost like psychic vampires, you know, sort of predatory entities that would lurk in the shadows at night and dress in black. And they had sort of weirdly illuminated eyes and would literally manifest in his attic um, and sort of bear down on him. I point out in the book, you know, like a spider bearing down on a fly or something like that. And then he would find himself going dizzy and lightheaded. A smell of brimstone would enter the room and overpower him. And he'd go into like a typically definitive altered state of mind and the men in black would appear, you know, fully formed and offer their warning or whatever the, the message was, and then sort of vanish and slowly but surely Bender would regain his sort of wits and, you know, um, begin to return to, to a normal state of mind. Um, but it all kind of smacks of altered states, dabbling in the occult, opening doorways and portals, 
and something pretty negative coming through and having actually a profound, equally negative effect on the life of the person. You know, Bender started off as someone enthusiastic about ufology, ended up physically, you know, affected, worn out all the time, migraines, just physically drained, mentally drained. It's clear from his own writings, he had a degree of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and he also developed a weird uh, obsession with, or terror, if you like, of developing some sort of cancer, uh, you know, when he was just a young guy. So in other words, what began as, you know, a sort of an open-minded, exciting excursion into ufology turned into something dominated by the men in black, the occult, and, and ill health, you know, which I think all had a bearing on the fact that, you know, he entered ufology and didn't uh, wait too long before he left it either. Yeah, this is this stuff is fascinating. The, the, you also touch on in the book the possibility that uh, some of the Men in Black sightings are in fact government agents that that actually just get mistaken for for something more mysterious. Oh yeah, I mean this is one of the things I point out in the book. You know, I think one of the important factors when it comes to the MIB is that I don't believe there's one answer to the puzzle. What I think, what I kind of stress throughout the book, is that the Men in Black mystery is not this or that. You know, it has different strands. I think there is an occult, paranormal aspect to this, however we define what the occult or the paranormal might be. There is this aspect. But there are also government people who, you know, particularly in the 50s, with the, I mean, if you look at the CIA's Robertson panel in 52-53, one of their recommendations was that some of the early UFO groups that had, uh, with developing big followings like APRO and Bender's group, um, should be watched to see, you know, were they patriotic, were they being infiltrated by the dastardly reds, you know, things like that. And I'm quite sure that some stories of the men in black can be traced back if we had all the data and we could interview the people who may now be long dead, you know. Some of the MIB legends certainly could be traced back to government people who, you know, just part, it was just part of their job to go out and see, you know, who's this person talking about UFOs? You know, what, what are they talking about? What's their agenda? And it mutated into an MIB story. What I also point out in, in the book is that a number of researchers suggested to me, uh, one being Greg Bishop, that possibly to cover their tracks, some of the government investigators may have sort of impersonated the weirder men in black, you know, these sort of odd-looking characters who ask the weird questions, as a means to, you know, disguise and camouflage their real point of origin. So... This sort of makes the story very confusing because we have the real strange men in black. We have government investigators getting mistaken for MIB. And we also have deeper, you know, from probably, you know, black project type people who masquerading as the weirder men in black. Um, so it's no wonder that the mystery is sort of elusive and confusing. So I think there could be several strands, even the Walter Mitty angle, you know, somebody in ufology who likes to think he's some James Bond type character. I think that comes into play as well. And I think, I think these types of cases are, I guess, you know, less prevalent than the weirder ones, but they, they have helped to sort of nurture and, and provoke and create the, the men in black mythology that most of us know. Yeah, this that one's fascinating to me because, uh, you know, I would love to sort of, I mean, I just think of, uh, 
you know, playing it from their end, you know, if you wanted to confuse an issue or muddle an issue or harass uh, a UFO researcher or or someone who had a sighting, uh, you know, one of the ways to do it would be to, um, I don't know, just, you know, have a, uh, how to say it, you know, like, you know, like in the back lot of some FBI office, they would have the, the special black sedan that they would pull out every once in a while. And, you know, yeah. they would, uh, you know, put on the pancake makeup and, and rehearse a sort of awkward little speech. So they sounded, you know, very confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that would actually be, you know, a very viable scenario. I mean, you know, if you want to, if you work in a government agency and a diff- you know, a really important UFO event has occurred. Or maybe the witness has seen a classified military aircraft that, you know, flew off range or it was a remotely piloted thing and, you know, it went out of control, crashed, or was just seen by someone. You may want to go around to the house of that person, you know, and silence them. But equally, you may want to cover your tracks. You go around flashing an ID card from a specific agency the person may well put a complaint into their, you know, their local congressman or senator saying, hey, you know, I got harassed by this agency A or agency B. If you actually employ sort of the folkloric imagery of a weird-looking guy in a black suit asking illogical questions and looking kind of odd, what that does, it, it silences the witness, but it also covers the tracks of the relevant agency. It probably ensures most people outside of ufology won't even take the case seriously or give it any attention whatsoever. Ufology will relegate it to either hoaxing or, wow, it's those weird men in black and just file it away. And all the time, the real secret gets hidden. I think, you know, employing cover stories like this or extracting key elements from folklore and UFO UFO lore, if you like, actually is um, you know, a very good uh, method of camouflage. And it's ironic that, you know, we perhaps have helped nurture the MIB imagery and from reading books, magazine articles, periodicals, etc., government personnel may have actually thought, well, you know, this is a good image we can use to silence the very people who are talking about this image. So, uh, you know, this is, again, why it gets so confusing, I think. This this brings to mind. Um, I was at the Open Minds Conference this February in Arizona, and John Alexander spoke. And John Alexander is you know ever the military insider uh, who's done who just wrote a book recently, and also um, oh has a public history in in non lethal weaponry. And yeah. uh, and he wrote a book about the UFO phenomenon, the UFO subject from an insider's point of view. And, and you know, I, I, it's kind of interesting. I, I'm wondering, you know, where if he's playing the role of disinformation agent in some way, because his conclusions, he's very dismissive of any mm. kind of, uh, of thing involved in the government. But it's the, the funny thing was at the very end of the presentation, he, you know, pulls out a pair of uh, wraparound black sunglasses, puts them on his <laughs> eyes and then picks up uh, like a prop. And it looked like a prop, uh, you know, from the actual movie Men in Black. And, and it's the funny alien technology mine erasing pen do you know what i'm talking about yes yeah yeah so he holds up this little pen and and he says basically something to the effect he looks at the audience he says now i'm going to erase your memory and he makes a little <laughs> flash with this pen and that was the end of his speech mm. so i mean well, yeah i mean yeah i mean I'm, I'm i'm you know i'm aware of john's conclusions and his book etc and um you know i think you know one of the this is one of the things about ufology why it's so difficult to get a grip on what's known at an official level because in some respects I, I agree with John in the sense that, you know, it's a 
when it comes to the issue of government knowledge, involvement or interest, you know, it's like, is there official CIA interest in ufology? There may not be, but could there be like, and, you know, that would be more in line with John's line of thinking, but could there be a super secret, deeply buried group in government which recruits people in positions of authority and power and knowledge and expertise from agencies like the NSA, the CIA, and they're subtly given an invite to join this group that technically may not officially exist, that isn't subject to congressional oversight, that gets its budget and its funding from, you know, other means. So, in other words, technically you could argue in legal terms that isn't official government involvement, but it may involve people who are officially within agencies, but they're recruited into something that, by definition, may not really exist. So, you know, I, th I, I still consider, no pun intended, it's like a grey area as to to what extent the official government takes an interest in UFOs versus some sort of quasi-official body that is made up of uh, people from officialdom, shall we say. And in your book, you have uh, documentation from pretty much right from the desk of J. Edgar Hoover, where they were wrestling with these same questions, like, you know, what's going on out there? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most ironic things I think I found in writing the book was that, you know, through the Freedom of Information Act, I got hold of FBI files on Gray Barker, who chronicled Albert Bender's experiences in his 1956 book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, got files on both Gray Barker and Albert Bender. And one of the biggest ironies is that there's actual documents in the file, which I reproduce in the book, talking about how none other than FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover actually asked one of his, or ordered one of his agents to get a hold of Barker's book on the men in black because Hoover wanted to know who they were. So in other words, within the UFO community, you know, we think the MIB, or a lot of people think they're government agents. Then we read 50-year-old FBI files where you have the people like J. Edgar Hoover essentially asking the question, who the hell are these guys in black suits running around silencing American citizens? You know, we expect them to have the answers or to be the MIB. To find that they're asking the exact same questions we're asking it is, you know, sort of beyond illuminating. Hey, uh, how does Gray Barker fit into the history of the Men in Black thing? I have his book on my desk here, just the recently reprinted 1983 book, The Men in Black, uh, with a foreword by you, I'll add. And I have not had a chance to read it. I just got it as, uh, just within the last few weeks. Yeah, well, basically, Gray Barker, um, without, certainly as I point out in the book, I mean, without Barker, you know, there would not be um, a Men in Black mystery as it stands today. There's absolutely no doubt about that at all. Now, Barker was some, a very interesting character. He passed away in 1984. But um, he was someone, he, he lived in uh, Clarksburg, West Virginia, and he ran a motion picture booking business at the time uh, when Albert Bender set up the IFSB. But just like Bender, Barker was massively interested in possibly bordering on obsessed by the occult and the paranormal and supernatural, also gravitate, gravitated towards ufology. But he was also a definitively excellent writer. Now, a lot of people disagree with his conclusions and have suggested, you know, you have to read his work very carefully because he wasn't, he was the sort of person who might turn, you know, the, a, a nice bright sunny day into the sort of proverbial dark and stormy night in his book to get a message across or to create an atmospheric scene. Not because he was being 
deceptive or lying, but he was someone who would sort of use like parable and metaphor and, you know, to replace just hard facts, if you like, to tell a story where it was based on the facts, but, you know, he felt that putting it into sort of story format had a better chance of getting across to the reader what he was trying to say. So it wasn't deliberate deception. It was almost like an early gonzo type of writing directed at the UFO market. So you do have to be careful how you interpret Barker's writings. You know, he was, a, he was a great story writer, but we still have to be careful, you know, how we interpret his work because, as I said, he does use sort of parable, metaphor. Um, you know, he would change witness descriptions and names and things like that, but still using fact. But essentially, you know, he was like an early gonzo writer, um, telling a truthful story, but in a fashion that was semi-fictionalized to get a, a deep message across. Now, Barker gravitated towards the IFSB. He had a lot in common with Bender. And, the, you know, the two hit it off and became friends. And from there, you know, when Bender decided to shut down the IFSB and alluded to this mysterious meeting with three menacing men in black, Barker, as an author and a writer, recognized the great story potential in this, and so wrote his own book on the subject. They knew too much about Flying Saucers, which was published in 1956. And it told the story of Bender's experience, how he set up the IFSB, how he came to close it down, these rumors about government chicanery and you know menacing threats, etc. And, and it, it is a great read. And I have to say, personally, I think that that Barker's book on Mothman, which is called The Silver Bridge, is actually superior to John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies. You know, that's always seen as the definitive book on Mothman. I actually think Barker's book is far more descriptive, better, and easily captures the image of Mothman and the sort of the strange, unsettling atmosphere that descended upon Point Pleasant at the time far better than, than Keel's book does. But that, that's just my opinion. Um, but so, in other words, he was someone who was at the forefront of MIB research in the early 50s. He was someone who was friends and a colleague of Bender, and more importantly, someone who was at the in the prime position to to see all the developments and chronicle them at the time. So, you know, without Barker and Bender collectively, that there simply would not have been an MIB mystery as as we perceive it today. Oh, so let me just ask you this question. So the book I have in my hand right now, The Men in Black, The Secret Terror, is that a reissue of the 1956 book? No, that, that's actually another book. No. Um, he wrote, the. they knew too much about flying saucers, came out in 56. This one is actually a different book. He uses some of the, the same cases, but it has a lot of updated material, uh, new cases and you know new thoughts and ideas on people like Bender and the early... 50s and 60s experiences that, that Barker investigated. So, uh, you know, if, if people want to get a good handle on Gray Barker's research of writings on the men in black, they should get a copy of both books because, you know, they contain significantly different data as well. And how does John Keel fit into all this, uh, which I have I have read and I enjoyed greatly, and I found it fascinating, um, The Mothman Prophecies, as well as, as his other books. I think I've pretty much read everything sure. he's written. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, Keel, you know, I mean, I think, I, you know, Keel's dead now, so, we, you know, we're not able to put, um, you know, words into his mouth, so to speak, but I think Keel would not be happy, you know, with being considered a ufologist or a cryptozoologist or an occultist. I think he would be, the best way to describe 
describe him, he's like a definitive 14. And But like Grey Bark, you know, he wasn't just someone who wrote about the facts, you know, he would, he would write things in a very descriptive, imaginative, almost, um, you know, colourful fashion that, again, was as much about storytelling as it was about getting the facts across. And I think it's clear from Keel's writings, I'm sure most people would agree, who are familiar with them, you know, that he, like a lot of us who enter ufology, which where things are a little bit black and white to start with, or very black and white, you know, over time we begin to realize that, hey, certain things don't add up and the phenomena seems far weirder than we perceive it to be. And it seems to overlap into different areas. And Keel noticed this, you know, he noticed the correlations between, or crossovers between ufology, cryptozoology, demonology, occultism, you know, people who were involved in UFOs like Bender often gravitated to the paranormal as well. And Keel was someone, I think, who arguably one of the first people to bring to sort of a mainstream wider audience the notion that ufology isn't all that it seems to be, or paradoxically, it's more than it seems to be. Um, and I think, you know, he, this resonates with his research into the men in black as well, where he chronicled a lot of reports from Point Pleasant, West Virginia, where the Mothman was seen in the mid-60s, where nearly all the men in black reports from that period and, and location fell into this high strangeness MIB category. You know, this wasn't Air Force investigators looking for Mothman. This was sort of these super weird little guys with bowl haircuts in some cases, what looked like lifts on their shoes, pale and pasty skin, and just, you know, just seemed to exude menace and just this unsettling air about them that, you know, people just didn't want them in their company. And I think, I think Keel was someone, again, who, in the same way that in the 50s, Barker was responsible for really giving birth in literary terms to the men in black, and it kind of tailed off in the 50s. Keel certainly, with the Mothman Prophecies book in the 70s, reignited the mystery and, and you know, sort of created a realisation in the part of many people that this had, was still ongoing in the 1960s as well and, and, and right through the 70s also. And, and if I remember correctly in that book, uh, Keel talks about, uh, and this is in the Mothman Prophecies book, Keel talks about the associated you know, paranoia that, that overcomes the researcher. And he oh, talked yeah. about, uh, oh, getting phone calls at night and mail being tampered with, as well as he said he watched on television alone in his apartment in New York, the inauguration of Richard Nixon in 1968, which I guess technically would be January of 69. And he says, uh, which I've never heard before since, and I've actually tried to look this up in photographs and things, haven't been able to find anything, but uh, that behind Richard Nixon on the podium were, and I can't remember how many, like a few uh, men who had the appearance of like, you know, what he referred to as sort of this classic men mm -hmm. in black thing. This, these mm -hmm. Asian, dark-haired, oddly featured people, mm -hmm. the way he described it, if I remember correctly, they just, they weren't, you know, standing or looking or moving quite right compared to the rest of the people in, on the podium there. You know, so did that did that invade his subconscious? Was it really on the television? How did he tap into that uh, that imagery of these odd men in black right on the podium with none other than Richard Nixon? Mm. Well, I mean, that's actually a very good point because, you know, I think one of the things we get from reading Keel's work is that he wasn't just an observer of the UFO or paranormal phenomena. He was actually someone who, when he began to look into it, it was as if the phenomena turned the tables and began to get its grips into him. 
you know, he would arrive at a hotel just, you know, driving, driving light at night and just find the nearest hotel at random and stop there. He'd check in and then weird phone calls would come through on the hotel room phone, you know, and it wasn't like he'd pre-book the hotel three days in advance and told half of ufology where he'd be staying. You know, it was stranger than that. And I mean, the weirdest story of all, without doubt, that I, th I just did not know about, which sort of blew my mind, and which I think explains why Keel was so fascinated, and possibly even obsessed almost by the MIB. I, one of the people I interviewed for my book was Brad Steiger, who's obviously, you know, a long-term um, player in the UFO paranormal subject, you know, the author of, I think, nearly 200 books now. Um, and Brad told me, uh, he was a little bit reticent at first, but he said, you know, it happened, and, you know, I'm recounting it accurately from memory, so, you know, I'm prepared to say it. But he told me how, when he got to know Keel in the mid-60s, and, you know, they would hang out and have dinner together and things like that, Keel confided in Steiger, a very weird experience. And Brad Steiger told me he didn't feel that, you know, Keel was kind of yanking his chain or pulling his leg or whatever. He came across as sort of deeply disturbed and upset and frightened by the experience. But he said that almost sort of paralleling Albert Bender's experience in the early 50s, at one point in the mid-60s, when his MIB research was at its height, Keel's apartment, he said, was literally kind of invaded by three men in black who quite literally manifested through the front door of his apartment. And they were sort of like ethereal, wraith-like, shadowy men in black who, you know, sort of made that sort of veiled threat that they always make, which you can interpret in different ways, not being sort of outwardly, you know, you will die if you continue on this path. But it was, you know, making a subtle threat or hints and then allowing the person to put the thread together but the important thing was you know it wasn't the case of getting a knock on the door and the g-men turning up it was these menacing sort of blank-faced ashen characters literally manifesting through the woodwork of the door and putting the fear of god into into keel now you know as i said brad steiger was convinced that keel was not pulling his leg that, you know, he'd had a very traumatic experience. And that being the case, I think we would have to sort of suggest that must have had a bearing upon why Keel so deeply looked into this phenomenon and took it so seriously, because to some extent he'd been exposed to it to a, a pretty profound degree. Oh, wow. I hadn't, yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, oh, and I'll just add that uh, in a couple of days, I'm going to be interviewing Brad Steiger. He just has a book oh, about, cool. out about uh, what's called... Real uh, Aliens. Real Aliens, yeah. yeah. So. Mm -hmm. um, have you had any experience, first-hand experience? Yeah. In... Um, no, the, the, only thing, the only thing that's come close, uh, you know, I've never had that sort of knock on the front door or anything like that. The closest that I could say... And it doesn't even involve the paranormal side of the Men in Black. The closest thing that I've actually had is where, and this has happened on a number of occasions, you know, say, for example, somebody gives me a, a UFO report, whether you know, this actually goes back to the early 90s. I can you know, recall cases like this is sort of pre-internet era. Somebody might phone me up and say, you know, is that Nick Redfern who writes for UFO magazine? You know, I say, yeah, and they've got a story to tell. And, you know, I'd say something along the lines of, truthfully, like, you know, I'm just about to leave for a few days away for a conference. Can I give you a call when I get back? You know, it'll be sort of Monday, Tuesday, next week, and we can have a longer chat. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. So then I, you know, I get back home after the conference, phone them up, and the whole attitude has changed. 
And on a number of occasions, you know, it was a case of actually getting from the witness, albeit somewhat reluctantly on their part, a response, well, you know, after I spoke to you a day later, I got this weird phone call suggesting it wouldn't be a good idea to talk about that UFO sighting I had, and I really don't want to talk about it now, thank you. The phone goes dead. Um, now, if it's happened once, you know, you could just put it down to fantasy or whatever. I would say from 91 to... Well, I, le I left England, I moved from the UK to England in 2001, but I would say between 91 and probably 97, 98, I probably got at least eight or nine, which might not sound many, but it's still a significant number of reports that fell into that category where I planned on speaking with people and they claimed to, you know, have been sort of approached in some less than tactful fashion about speaking out, and which actually resonated with them to the point where they didn't want to speak. Um, so, you know, I haven't had that sort of direct threat or warning or even had the paranormal experience, but the people on a number of occasions that I'm going to interview do or have seemed to have had that experience where, you know, it does seem granted more like the government angle than the, the more menacing, weird angle, but it's still, I think, an aspect of the phenomenon itself. Now, the, the uh, you know, it's whenever I hear a story like that, I try to put myself in the shoes of the uh, the implications of what you're saying is that the phone is tapped and there's someone listening and, and that person is just, you know, has a job on their desk and, and uh, they uh, do a follow-up phone call to the person who contacted you and harass them in a way that they probably have gotten skilled at over the years. They probably know certain keywords to say and, you know, how hard to push and um, uh, yeah, but, but here's my question, though: is is there any pattern in those nine cases? I mean, were they all talking about like you know sightings near a military base or anything like that? Um, not really. I mean, from memory, I know a couple of them were abduction cases. And what's interesting is that I include a couple of those in the book. Uh, you know, a whole chapter in the book on MIB links with abduction. So a couple of them were definitely abductions. One, which is a very interesting case, where I actually was able to get some sort of verification for the the claim of the witness. Um, in 1996, when I was back in England, I did a lot of work with a local group in the area I was living at the time called the Staffordshire UFO Group, which is now shut down. And it was run by a woman at the time named Irene Bott. And Irene was given a story about an alleged UFO crash in 1964 in an area of central England, very close to where I used to live, called the Cannock Chase. The Cannock Chase is a very weird area of large, uh, large forested area which has been, it's almost like a, a, a to, to use a, you know, a, a term like portal or window area, there have been sightings of UFOs, Bigfoot, werewolves, um, strange creatures, crop circles, all sorts of things have focused upon this area of forest called the Cannock Chase. And there's a story about a, a UFO crash being approached various local media outlets, newspapers, radio shows, etc., to promote the group. And... As a result of this promotion, she was contacted by a guy um, named Harold South, who said that he was he was witness to a UFO crash incident deep in the woods in the Canuck Chase in early '64, and he said he saw the retrieval of some sort of triang small triangular-shaped object, only like about 12 to 15 feet long, that was loaded aboard a military transporter, and he was supposedly warned by the local police and the military to stay silent. This was 64, and he spoke out finally, sort of 95, 96. Now, myself and Irene went along to interview Harold South, and we called him, like eight, I think it was like 8.30 uh, one morning from my house, 
and said, you know, it would come, is it okay we come over now? And he said, yeah. And, and we said, well, we've got a few things to do. We'll be there in about two hours. Um, he was cool with that. When we arrived, again, his old whole mood and um, outlook had changed. He was very reluctant to speak, said, well, I should never have told you this. I really don't want to talk to you now. And, you know, we rightly pointed out, well, two hours earlier, everything was fine. And we said, well, you know, what's changed? And he said, well, in, the, in that period, his basic story was that he'd received a weird phone call um, from the military warning him not to talk about the UFO experience. Now, you know, everybody at some point in ufology hears stories like this. And, you know, you can either roll your eyes or accept it without proof. But in England, as over here, you have a sister. It's called the 1471 system, where if you dial 1471, it gives the last number of the, you know, the previous, or the number of the previous caller. And Irene said to Harold South, well, you know, can I dial 1471 and see if we can get a number of who it was that called you? We fully expecting there would be no number and he was just a fantasist or it would be blocked. But lo and behold, there actually was a number and it was actually an internal number. It was an operator number of the Mission Defence Guard Service um, and it was an internal number that was responsible for routing um, calls from military bases to members of to, to outside of the base. In other words, to, for security reasons, if you got the one, if you dialed one four seven one, you would not get the internal phone number of any particular person on base. You would get the operator service, which you would get if you just dialed the base anyway. So, in other words, it's, it's a way of protecting internal phone numbers at military bases in England. But we were able to trace the call back to the Ministry of Defence Guard Service operator service, which was sort of. Very, very weird. You know, you had this guy, he was a washing machine repairer, now retired, like 75, and we were able to verify that shortly after our call to him on, like, a Tuesday morning or something, he got a call from the MOD guard service um, right after our call to him. Now, of course, you know, we couldn't confirm that he was threatened, but we were able to confirm the call had come through. So that was sort of one case that even to this day... To, for me, you know, stands out as, as an example, potentially, of some sort of witness harassment to where the harassment worked, you know, and he, we had to really kind of persuade him to speak out, um, you know, about this experience, and it took time, and, he, and, he, and even at the end of it, you know, he still wasn't happy about the fact that he had spoken out. Now, this goes right back to that uh, story earlier about John Alexander, who says, like, oh, no, no, there's just, you know, there's nothing going on in the government. And, and uh, I mean, obviously, this is the British government rather than the United States government. But uh, yeah. um, and I'm sure such stories exist here. And I mean, was there evidence of, of something to the effect where that that triangular craft that he saw being carted away was that uh, a typical? Was it a terrestrial thing? Was that something made by the British government or is there well, any way to know that? There's not, I mean, Irene did farm, I just went along on that one interview, but Irene, when she set her group up, you know, for when she was running the group, she retired uh, from the group in about 2001 and handed the reins over to one of the other members. But up until that point, she was sort of very proactive and, you know, and doing a lot of research in the area. And she tracked down a number of other people, including retired people from the fire service who were involved in cordoning off the road, apparently, and um, police officers who also remembered the retired police officers who remembered the cordon and said, you know, there's a heavy military presence, and they pulled something out of the field. Now, on the one hand, you know, you could make a good case, well, maybe the military was flying something, uh, and it came down on the cannon chase, and the military, you know, covered it up, and anybody who saw it was, you know, 
I wouldn't say necessarily threatened, but you know, don't talk about this, etc. Um, the the only problem I have with that particular theory is that what could we have been flying back in '64 that was so secret that it would require the witness to be silenced in 1996? You know, 32 years later. You know, it's like. Is it, why were we flying something so advanced that 32 years on it still required a degree of secrecy to hide the story? Um, and what's interesting, though, is that the the story itself actually was also given by another source, a NATO source, to Leonard Stringfield, one of the, I guess, more acclaimed researchers of crashed UFO stories. Stringfield also published a story back in the 1990s and said that he'd been told this by a guy who was working on a Navy ship, um, with NATO, and basically their job was to intercept Soviet communications, and they said they heard the Soviets talking about this crash in the Cannock Chase Woods in '64, right at the time it happened. Um, so, in other words, you know, we get we've got all these different strands to the story, and and to me, although you know, I'm not a big champion of stories like Roswell as being extraterrestrial, you know, this one for me does still make me wonder, you know, if you know, there have been some a few genuinely anomalous crashes of things that really are not ours, you know, and that there has been some sort of surveillance of the primary witnesses who who've had some sort of exposure, you know, inadvertently obviously to the to whatever occurred. Hey, what during the during the creation of this book, um, what surprised you? What did you come away with that you didn't expect as you stepped into the project? Well, I think I think one of the most uh, notable things was the way in which the experience with the MIB has an effect on the a psychological effect upon the on the witness to the UFO or you know to exposure to the MIB. You know, it's almost like a lot of the people exposed to the phenomenon, whether it's in person, the telephone interference, mail interference, they all seem to develop in varying degrees a certain degree of paranoia. Um, which is understandable. You know, I don't mean that as, um, um, you know, as any sort of criticism or, you know, a, a shortfall in on their part. It, it simply is a natural byproduct, I think, of being the realization that somebody's either watching you, threatening you, or worse still, both. Um, you know, people, well-known figures in, in ufology, I mean, Greg Bishop told me quite openly and bravely as well, you know, was happy to be quoted in the book, how... He was telling me from sort of 96 to 97, he was just steeped in deep paranoia. You know, he, he saw somebody outside his house, photograph the house once, and then quickly drive off. He was um, liaising deeply with Carla Turner on abduction issues, and all the mail between the two of them would arrive at their, each respective house already opened and tampered with and resealed, as if to, you know, just to show that somebody was reading the mail. And um, Greg told me, you know, he said, I became totally paranoid. You know, he would sort of stare, peek through the blinds of the windows in case the MIB were watching him. And he said it took a lot of effort to break away from, you know, that whole um, angle of deep paranoia. And people like Bender did not break away from it. You know, it actually blighted their lives to where they became physically and psychologically ill. Um, so I think that is one of the more both surprising and illuminating things about doing the research was the not just how it affects the person at the time but how it can have like a long-standing effect on their psychological state as well unless they sort of take concerted steps to you know to, to break out of that grip if you like 
That's very interesting because it seems like um, uh, one of the things that even I'm just thinking of the UFO phenomena in general is people who claim to have witnessed something, uh, you know, it often changes their worldview uh, in a way that's that's quite profound. You know, the people who, who have seen or, or uh, had the first-hand contact experience are, you know, forever changed by this. You know, sometimes it's, you know, sort of in a, in a blissful, uh, you know, doughy-eyed, uh, true believer sort of way, and then other way, other times it's in a very, very sort of dark and paranoid way. But um, it, just having someone show up at your door, I wonder if there's, if they are actually exuding some sort of, of, uh, you know, some sort of force or some sort of energy that we can't even uh, identify that, that, that somehow has that influence on them? Well, I mean, this is an area that I do get into in the book. I mean, for example, one of the other areas, kind of in some respects sort of dovetails with the trickster angle, is that of tulpas, you know, the idea of constructed thought forms that have some sort of semblance in reality, but, you know, they're almost like temporary entities, that are sort of, as Chris O'Brien described it, are sort of dispatched to perform a specific task. But they seem to have like a limited lifespan and only a very basic self-awareness of the job they're supposed to do. You know, it's almost like they're a a short-lived computer program, you know, that goes out to perform a specific task on the computer and then when it's completed, you know, it, um, it shuts itself down. And that's how some people describe the MIB. And, you know, the, the idea of the Tolpa is that it derives energy from, you know, essentially feeding on human emotion, like a, a, an emotional vampire, if you like, um, rather than, you know, the, the classic blood-sucking vampire of legend. Um, and, you know, the idea that the men in black, you know, if you look at what the men in black do, as I pointed out earlier, one of the things that is very curious is sometimes they get involved in threatening and silencing witnesses to the most mundane UFO events, just a weird light in the sky, and that's it. So it's almost, as Chris also pointed out when I interviewed him, it's almost as if the the threat is secondary, or the the encounter is secondary to instilling fear in the witness. And as a number of people, like Alan Greenfield, who I also interviewed for the book, pointed out, maybe creating a nurturing fear in the witness, which can then be essentially fed upon in like a predatory parasitic style may be the entire point of the experience you know it's not necessarily to silence the witness it's to create fear in the witness because and if you look at a number of cases when the experience is over many people have said how they've actually felt totally run down and one described it to me as how like a diabetic might feel you know if they were running short on food they had you know they missed lunch they missed dinner and then everything starts to crash, you know, and they need that emergency sugar fix or whatever, you know, a diabetic needs. But And they actually felt that, you know, as if they'd been drained of uh, their life force almost, which is sort of a very ominous scenario. But again, when you get that strand running through countless MIB stories, I, I actually do believe we need to address that potential theory with a great deal of seriousness, the idea that, you know, the, the instilling of fear and feeding on it in some fashion. I know that sounds simplistic, but in, in some fashion of doing that could be the secret, if you like, that's at the heart of the entire MIB experience. And and that um, that that feeding off our emotion, often feeding off our negative emotion or even our mm-hmm. sexual emotion, does you know get bandied about as as a potential. 
uh, reason for these visitations, but they, they obviously have a different reason for being here, or they would have already gone through that, that military takeover. And so instead, they're just here to visit us and, and, and feed off of us, but not, you know, not feed on us on a, on a dinner plate like we would feed on, a, on carrots and cows, but feed on our emotions. Yeah, I think there's actually a very good argument for saying that, you know, we could be the equivalent of them to a herd. You know, they don't want to destroy us because they want a healthy herd upon which they can feed. You know, and I mean, that would make sense that, you know, the, the illogical argument would be, well, they're either coming to, or the other arguments, they're coming here to help us or destroy us because that's the simplistic viewpoint that we have. They destroying us may be the very last thing they want because then there's nothing to work with if we're gone. You know, so maybe we really are the equivalent of sort of the cattle in the field and we're not we're just not seeing, you know, the, the overall bigger picture. I think, you know, that that's an important point to, to sort of to look at if you like. Um, Charles Fort, you know, he came to the conclusion that we are property. And Mac Tony's followed that up with, uh, that may be true, but we may be very valuable property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, it's often our ego as a species to think that if someone's coming here, well, it's either going to be to help us because they view us as so important or to destroy us because we're so powerful, the mighty human race, you know. Um, and I think we we tend to look at things from a black and white perspective and i think ufology much of ufology is extremely guilty of doing that you know it's a lot of people look at the phenomena from a very simplistic perspective that aliens are coming here and the government knows the truth and that's basically the story you know and and abducting us for, for whatever purposes um when you look at it at a far more deeper psychological level and we see these spillovers into other areas we hear you know of tulpas of tricksters of the occult times and you know people just you know, becoming sick physically and mentally when they delve into these areas you realize that unless there's something ultra weird going on a genuine just just nuts and bolts phenomena would not act in this fashion and it would not have the reaction that it has on the on the eyewitnesses and the the means and, and the way in which it, it impacts upon the people's lives, you know, even to the extent where people have seen the MIB days later have claimed, like, poltergeist activity in the house, you know. Unless there's something about science and physics we don't understand, you know, it's difficult to kind of reconcile that with just a visit from aliens from planet A or B in, the, you know, the nearest respective star system or wherever. So, you know, I think when people like Mac and Charles Fort, you know, talking about property and important property, significant property, what to me this smacks of, and I think it's an important thing, is that as a species, we're just not seeing the bigger picture. We're seeing a fragment of it, and we're struggling to the best of our abilities. Granted, I don't mean people who look at it just in black and white simplistic terms are being deceptive just to uphold a particular theory that might sell a book or whatever. I don't believe that for the most part. What I do believe is that we're struggling to see a full picture when, you know, the window is sort of grimy, dirty, dusty, and all we can see is, you know, just the little the bottom corner of the window and not the full picture that the entire window would show us. So um, I think, you know, there's far more going on, and I think a lot of it may not be to our advantage, you know, but it is to somebody else's advantage.
The, the one thing that I'm always hyper aware of whenever I hear reports or whenever I hear anyone speculating or talking about this phenomena is when they anthropomorphize. And I, and I just, you know, I just go right back to, uh, you know, Peter Cottontail. There's these cute little storybook images of this rabbit and he's dressed up in, in a little tie and a little suit coat and he, he sits at a table and drinks tea. Um, and, and that's all well and good in, in that simplistic realm, but you know, they've anthropomorphized the rabbit to, to be us. And then I, 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 am always very aware and I catch myself doing it a lot and I and I try to call myself on it when I do is that you know we the researchers or, or anyone who speculates on the subject will anthropomorphize these aliens and mm. and I just think that the alien when you look it up in the dictionary doesn't really talk about something from another planet it talks about something so uh, mm. unknown to us that it that it, it takes on an alien identity yeah. that it's just it's unknowable because it is so distant from our from our normal waking reality yeah you're right and i think if people you know people want to use a term like alien when it comes to ufos they really should use the term extraterrestrial which is to the point you know and describes what they're actually trying to say alien you know is you're quite right it's something that's just definitively weird and and just so different you know beyond our experience in many respects and I think, you know, again, I come back to this is, I think, one of them, you know, I'm not trying to put, certainly put myself on a pedestal more than anybody else. You know, I'm not doing that. But I do think significant portions of ufology have made a major mistake in simplifying the nature of what they see as the UFO experience and the, and the UFO agenda, if you like. It, it really is you know, aliens are coming here to take our DNA, sperm and eggs because their species are on the decline, the government knows it, and they've clamped down on it. And that's pretty much it. You know, and occasionally the UFOs crash and burn and the bodies are on, in cold storage. I'm not saying that isn't a part of the phenomenon, I'm not saying that at all. But to reduce it to those terms and to blatantly, and in some cases deliberately and knowingly, you know, just dismiss the work of people like Keel and Valet, you know, that point out these clear parallels between ancient phenomena like fairies, goblins, you know, visits to the fairy kingdom and the parallels with alien abductions and missing time. To dismiss all that because it doesn't sit comfortably in, you know, the, the nuts and bolts mindset of today is, to me, number one, it's inexcusable because you're supposed to be looking for answers, not creating answers. And to me, it, it's lazy. And third, it, to me, it smacks of fear of opening doorways you may not want to open and having a far more comfortable mindset with the idea that it's just the equivalent of Apollo astronauts going to the moon, but, you know, coming here. Um, to me, you know, and it says a lot about, you know, from a psychological perspective, it's very interesting that people respond like that. You know, they want to try and pigeonhole it into this or that because it sits comfortably in their mindset. You know, that's why we have organized religion because you know organized religion to my you know this is getting a little bit off topic but organized religion to me says nothing about whether or not life after death exists organized religion is purely put in place to control people through fear and guilt um but people create their own religious belief systems you know whether it's christianity or it's buddhism or whatever um, based around what they're taught and what they become indoctrinated with um, and none of it really has any bearing on what, whether or not there's a soul 
it's just a, a, um, a simplification and a means to try and explain the mysteries of potential life after death. And that's what ufology is. It's, um, it's a constructed scenario to explain a mystery that we don't have a handle on, and we dismiss parts of it and other parts we embrace. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's absolutely wrong. You know, I think that's, it's totally wrong. Yeah, the the uh, the mystery that surrounds this is, and I'm just speaking from my direct experience, where where uh, I have been confronted with uh, things that are so strange, and so and most of the, most of my experiences have been in the form of really really profound uh, synchronicities that are somehow tied mm-hmm. back into the UFO phenomena. Um, that that just it doesn't seem like you know astronauts on a metal spaceship from some other realm could turn a little knob and control things so magnificently to intersect with my life Mm. well no i mean i mean i've had that experience as well you know a lot of synchronicities and i think most people in the phenomena do and i think the more you dig into the subjects uh, you know however we define the paranormal i'll just use that word you know because of simplification but however we define the world of the paranormal I think the more you dig into it and the more you're open to the idea that it isn't what it appears to be and you challenge accepted paradigms of, you know, nuts and bolts craft or flesh and blood Bigfoot or whatever, I think, I don't know how it happens or why it happens, but I think the phenomena recognizes when we go looking for it. It's almost like we show up on its radar. And when that happens, then the phenomena gets its grips into us. And sometimes it can, and again, I'm not sure why, you know, I have a few ideas and theories, but sometimes the phenomena seems helpful, you know, and, and with synchronicities, and it puts us in touch with certain people who actually can offer some sort of insight, often profound insight, into things that we're looking into at that very time. And you think, wow, someone's really helping to pull the strings. Other times it seems to blight people's lives, you know, they just suffer from constant misfortune and bad luck to a point where it just doesn't seem feasible that, you know, somebody like Bender, who was deeply into the occult, terrified of cancer, kind of a, a you know, a timid person, etc., the phenomena got its grips to him, into him in a negative perspective. You know, somebody else, it might get into more positive perspective, or like Greg, who was sort of, overwhelmed by paranoia of 96, 97, but got himself out of it, uh, still had a lot of weird experiences and synchronicities, but they seem far more positive now than the experiences that occurred that dragged him down into this sort of, you know, psychological state of paranoia. So, again, I think, you know, how we react to the phenomenon or phenomena depends upon the nature of the phenomenon that gets its grips into us and how it does it. You know, just you saying that, I go back to how I just think of the the different conclusions that are arrived at by Leo Sprinkle and Bud Hopkins. I think both of those people, you know, however flawed you want to say the methodology might be, are quite serious in the fact that they are looking for very real answers. And and how open-minded they are, I you know, whatever, we're all human and, and it's hard to know. But what happens is people go to Leo Sprinkle with like an abduction memory and they come away with a beautiful space brother interaction where they they have uh, something beautiful and blissful mm. that that will occur and then bud hopkins will interact with his patients his clients 
and you know something much more malevolent will come out uh there's there seems to be a sinister motive behind that now some people will say that that is the researcher leading the witness and making their conclusions match you know what they want them to match in in sort of carefully choosing the data points so leo would would you know may have like a a deep feeling of communion with the space brothers and it'll come out in his research and and then uh, bud hopkins may have a more malevolent big picture but the stranger thing is and this is something that doesn't get explored is are are the are the individuals migrating towards that researcher in ways that that would would almost be i don't want to use the term you know esp or something like that are they migrating to that researcher by unseen forces which to me almost makes more sense Mm-hmm. Or do they just, you know, read a book by uh, Bud Hopkins and go, ooh, that guy's, you know, got a dark outlook on the thing. I'm going to go to this nice man, Leo Sprinkle. Yeah. Well, I think it could be, you know, a combination of, of both angles. You know, I think, you know, people people do kind of gravitate to, you know, consciously or not, they do gravitate to people who perhaps have a similar mindset, you know, and more willing to discuss their experiences with them if they feel it's in that particular category. Um but equally, I think there is an aspect to it where people clearly within the 14 world are at times, and particularly on profound times, and sometimes in life-changing moments in their life, are, I guess, driven to certain people by what, is, to me, is clearly some sort of hidden hand at work, you know, metaphoric hand, so to speak, um, guiding them in this direction or that direction, and, and often at critical times. Now... You know, maybe the sort of the, the the learning process and the negativity angle is a means by which you know somebody who maybe not have a particularly strong character who sees everything in a negative light, you know, perhaps it's a way of by plunging them even further into that world and forcing them to dig themselves out of it is actually sort of a learning teaching process. You know, it's like pull up your, you know, pull up your boots, so to speak, and stop whining and, you know, wallowing in negativity, because if you don't, we'll throw you further down in it, and then we'll teach you to get out of it. You know, maybe this phenomena is not just a teacher, but it's a harsh teacher. You know, we expect the whole, a lot of people expect the whole love and light angle, they're coming here to help us. Well, maybe, you know, sometimes to help people, you have to teach them a harsh reality. And maybe that's why some people have profoundly negative UFO experiences, because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, maybe it's actually be, going to be for the better. You know, maybe it's not going to be for the worse. Um, but we, you know, unless we get rewarded, you know, uh, like the dog with his biscuit or whatever, we think, you know, why is this phenomenon doing this to us? You know, and I think it may be, you know. Human, the human mind is an intricate one. You know, we need challenges. We need to, you know, advance and, and push forward. And it's kind of like, you know, the little baby bird in the nest. You know, the, the baby bird might think, why did, why did the mother bird kick it out the nest, you know, 10 feet down into the ground to let it fend for itself? You know, that's a pretty harsh action. Well, at the end of the day, no, it's not a harsh action because otherwise that little baby bird never leaves the nest and is overly reliant on its parents. Which is, which is not a good, healthy situation. And uh, maybe that's what we're being taught, you know, that life's harsh and reality's harsh and that, you know, this, this phenomena, if you're open to it, will teach you the realities of life, but it won't shy away from, you know, presenting it all in a good light if 
you know, you need to be taught a few lessons in the process. Yeah, very much so. Um, it, the one story I really uh, sort of blew me away in reading the book here, or the bits of the book that I did read, is the Colin Bennett story that took place, I think, in the mm -hmm. early 1980s in London. Yeah, sure. This, this is a very weird story. I mean, Colin, Colin's an interesting character because he's a well-respected person in ufology as well. You know, he's not just uh, an MIB witness, if you like. Um, he's written a number of very well-respected and received books, one on Charles Fort and also one on Edward Ruppelt, who ran the uh, Air Force's Project Blue Book uh, for a while back in the 1950s. But Colin had this very weird man in black experience in the early 1980s, uh, living in London at the time. And the experience actually began when he was walking home late one night from uh, the cinema. What's interesting about that is that that's actually how one of Albert Bender's experiences with the men in black actually began. Um, oh, you know, here, let me just ask a quick question. Do you know what movie he saw? Uh, no, I actually don't. No, I'm not sure what it I, was. Maybe it wouldn't make any difference at all, but I just no. those are the kind of things well, I would... Well, I mean, it may have made some difference, you know. I don't think we can actually rule that out, you know. Perhaps it made him, made him more open to some sort of experience. But certainly with Bender, we know that when his experiences began, he actually was a big fan of horror films and sci-fi movies, you know, the early 50s stuff like The Day the Earth Stood Still and Thing from Another World, films like that. And he would, his trips to the cinema would be solitary ones, and he said that he saw these sort of MIB-type characters lurking in the shadows in the corner of the old cinema. But anyway, that, that's just an aside, you know, to sort of draw a parallel between Bender's experiences and Colin's. But Colin um, was walking home and said he saw this weird light in the sky and looked at it and thought, well, you know, what is it? It looked like a very powerful searchlight, but it was just, you know, not moving. It was just uh, stationary. And he said then something very weird happened, that the, the light actually sort of mutated or transformed into a Second World War era British Royal Air Force Lancaster bomber, which, which sounds very bizarre. But then it got even stranger. It changed a third time into one of the sort of typical flying triangle type craft that people see today. Um, and... You know, so in other words, the, in the same way that people have suggested, you know, the MIB are some sort of shape-shifting type entities, the UFO that Colin saw was, a, I guess, a definitive shape-shifter. So he raced back to the apartment, uh, the flat that he was living in at the time with his girlfriend Mary, and was just about to sort of tell her this amazing experience. And lo and behold, when he got there, there was this, like a classic man in black in the room. And, you know, I guess this sort of, to an extent, you know, just struck Colin dumb. You know, he was just, you know, what to say. There was this guy sat there uh, who claimed to have been on a visit to see the person who lived in the flat upstairs. Um, he wasn't there, so he knocked on Mary's door and said, you know, can I come in and wait? And as I point out, and as Colin himself rightly noted, um, you know, it's not the done thing where late at night you just invite somebody in to sit on your couch because to see somebody who lives next door or down the street, you know. It's one thing just to say somebody drops off a letter for someone, but, you know, at 10, 11 o'clock at night, you just invite them into your home to sit there. Um, so that was sort of highly illogical in itself. And Colin then sort of reeled off the story of this UFO encounter. And he said what was most significant of all was the reaction of the man uh, at the MIB. It was almost as if, he ex expressed no surprise or, you know, sensational 
ideas or views on this experience. And he was actually sort of just listening intently to Colin relate, relate to what he saw, what he experienced, and judging Colin's reaction, uh, which would be very strange if this was just a man who was, you know, to, there to visit somebody on the upper floor, so to speak. Um, and Colin developed a deep feeling that the man in black's presence wasn't a coincidence on the very night that he had this UFO experience. He felt that the man really was there to judge Colin's reaction. Um, but like a lot of people, you know, at the time, Colin didn't kind of think, well, why did Mary let him in? Why is he here? It was only after the man in black said, after he heard the story, he's like, well, that was very interesting. I better be on my way now. And he sort of vanished into the night as mysteriously as it appeared. And it was then that Colin and Mary both began to think, why did we let him in? Why did we tell him all about that experience? And it was, it was almost like reality and, and the logical way of thinking was coming back into their mind. But it had actually been kind of erased during the time of the, you know, of the, of the visit, as if the, the person had held some sort of sway over Colin and Mary to where they spilled the beans well, Colin did at least on what occurred, and he got Mary's reactions and Colin's reactions. And when he was satisfied, he got all the data he needed. He bid, him, bid himself good, bid them goodbye, if you like, and, and went on his mysterious way. Um, and and again, this is a, a facet of many MIB encounters. The person, the witness, acts in an illogical fashion, just invites the per, the MIB in the house, you know, spills their guts on what occurred. And it's only afterwards that they, the realization hits home that they've just, you know, risked their lives by inviting a total stranger in the home at midnight or whatever and, you know, told them about this um, odd experience. And uh, what was even weirder was that Colin said that when he looked at his watch um, after the MIB had gone, it showed the same, pretty much the same time as when he left the cinema, as if there'd been like a, a time displacement possibly of, a, of an hour or more which, you know, pushes the whole thing into a very weird category, you know. Was it sort of a visionary experience? Did it occur in sort of 3D reality? Was it somewhere, some sort of realm straddling the two even? You know, who knows? But uh, it was certainly, from my perspective, one of the weirder and more significant MIB accounts because, it, you know, it comes from an acclaimed author as well. Um, and from Colin's perspective, you know, as a writer, the, the fortunate thing was that he was, you know, able to sort of write all the details down and then, you know, remember them and be able to relate them from memory years later. And one of the things that also struck me about that story, which is unusual because this is part of the UFO lore, but that I think that's the only Men in Black story that it's part of a UFO sighting. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, the, the MIB will turn up you know, days later, or sometimes weeks later, or it's just telephone interference. You know, Colin's case, this related directly because it was literally minutes later. You know, it was almost like the guy was practically on Mary's couch while Colin was actually seeing the UFO. You know, and that, that really does sort of stand out and take it away from just, you know, your average MIB encounter, if there is such thing as a, an average MIB encounter. But, you know, the... This is something that we find also in a lot of cases that, you know, somebody will have an MIB, excuse me, have a UFO experience, and the men in black arrive, they don't just arrive quickly, they almost arrive too quickly. You know, they're on the doorstep, you know, they, they might phone up and say, you know, um, hi, Mr. So-and-so, I'd like to speak about your UFO experience. 
You know, we're talking about back in the 70s when there may not have been, when there were no cell phones and there may not have been, you know, a phone booth on the corner or, you know, the nearest phone booth was a mile away or whatever in some little town. And yet the men in black are there, you know, within 30 seconds of making the call. You know, we get a number of cases like that, which, again, sort of push things down a, a path that sort of smacks of just illogical activity and almost impossible actions. But, you know, it, it happens. So. Yeah, just fascinating, just fascinating, and and so uh, elusive and spooky. This whole thing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that that that's one of the weirder things, you know, the fact that the the MIB, although you know they seem physical and flesh and blood, their entire mannerism, if you like, or you know, their behaviour, sort of smacks of an ethereal existence in many respects. You know, as a, Chris O'Brien pointed out to me. And as I quote him in the book, you know, he suggested they were like almost temporary entities that seem to be manufactured for one particular purpose. And when they've they've undertaken that purpose, you know, perhaps with even only a rudimentary understanding of what they are themselves, you know, they kind of wink out of existence or the program shut down until it's needed again. And then, you know, you reboot it and open word or whatever, you know, or Outlook Express and you, you start the program running again until you don't need it until the next time and um you know chris kind of likened it to that and i think there's there's a good argument for making that point you know they they appear on your doorstep at at 11 o'clock at night and they vanish as mysteriously and as definitively as they first arrived and um you know tracking them down is almost i don't want to say it's pointless because that sounds like we're giving up the chase it's not pointless but it's always fruitless we're just never able to sort of track them back to their their point of origin whatever that might have been yeah, the mysterious stranger who who shows up on the porch, uh, you blink your eye seemingly, and they're gone, including the car. Um, on you yeah. know, in, in environments where you could easily see the car driving away down the street, and you don't see that. It it paints a picture of something that's so uh, you know well beyond what the uh, you know somebody in uh, you know from an FBI office could pull off. Oh dear, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's far stranger than you know. You you're quite right. Just sending somebody out from the local branch of Homeland Security or whatever and saying, you know, hey, just tell that guy to knock it off with his blog posts or whatever, you know. And, or, uh, or even, you know, to, even to the extent of, you know, like, you know, tell the guy, you know, here, you know, one, you know, the case officer um, is actually told to go and impersonate an MIB and, you know, put on pancake yeah. makeup and stuff like that. And, and they, but they, I don't think they could pull off the, the effect of the car driving away and just disappearing so fast. No, there are certain aspects which really only apply to the genuinely strange MIB phenomenon. You know, there are other aspects where there could be crossovers and somebody's tried to imitate something, et cetera, et cetera. But certain aspects, you know, that they're just not explainable by by some guy being taught certain espionage tactics. You know, it goes far beyond that. Hey, I'll include in the show notes the how to get the book and how to order the book. Um, anything you want to say as far as getting the book? What's easiest? Um, well, people um, can order the book from you know Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Borders. Um, it should be on the shelves in Barnes and Noble, Borders, and there should be not any problems buying it online. Um, it's you know, all good, available bookselling outlets. And people, if people want to contact me, they can reach me at nickredfernsbooks.blogspot.com. Great. Hey, thanks so much for this. This is a subject that absolutely fascinates me, so this was great. Well, I appreciate that, uh, Mike. Great, and just so you know, you have been very popular, and I think you have uh, the most hits. Here, let me just look it up here real quick here. Um, I think you have the most hits of any 
Oh, I'm just going to scroll down. It says, okay, their most popular posts ever. And the first one is Audio Conversation with Nick Redfern. Oh, which one was that? Contact Aid or something? Uh, let me just look at that one there. I think that would have been... Let's take a second to look this up. Uh, Wednesday, September 15th, 2010. That was the final events. Oh, okay, final events. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And right. then and here's something you may find interesting. So I have this site here. And, you know, I have this little simple tool that will tell me the most popular sites, and it lists the top Mm -hmm. ten. And one of them that shows up all the time, which I don't understand, obviously, you know, um, you and Andy Colvin, and you you know Christopher Knowles, don't you? Who who does the... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they... they, Yeah, and Jake Kotze, those those were great audio interviews, and those get a lot of hits. And this one curious thing, this it says it's a it's a blog posting I did last summer. It's called I just labeled it "Tiny Dots on My Left Arm," and I have a funny scar. It's really small. It's not that interesting to look at, really. But I have this really small scar on my left arm, which is basically three little dots in a triangle. And it took me a while to figure out like why is that. And then there's a there's a way to search out how people arrived at my site and one Mm -hmm. of the ways they they arrive here is they'll type into google triangle scar left arm Ah. so so the implication is that there's people out there uh, many many hundreds of people out there Mm -hmm. who are googling that exact thing uh which oh okay now that's interesting yeah Hmm. yeah and i've gotten a lot of uh uh, either email correspondence directly or people, a few of them where people were commenting on that post and they'll, mm-hmm. they'll say, I used Google to search this out and, mm-hmm. um, and your scar looks exactly like what I have on my left arm. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah, whatever that means. So. Yeah, well, I think that's almost kind of like a synchronicity in itself. You know what I mean? Well, it's, it's less maybe a synchronicity and more it just, it just belies the fact that, you know, like I'm not alone in this, this yeah. curious little scar and that other people out there are using the computer and Google mm-hmm. to, to do their own self-investigation and somehow mm-hmm. um, after typing in a scar triangle dot left arm, uh, that's the headline of the blog posting. So it just, it shows yeah. up on their Google search. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. That's, uh, I guess that's kind of worth keeping you know, uh, in mind for future trends, you know, when you're looking to explore different areas, you know, see what it brings forth, you know. Very, very much so. And I've made an effort to contact these people and just talk with them directly. So so the stories are very, oh, very interesting. So. Oh, cool. Great. I'll let you go. Thanks so much. All right. And thanks again, Mike. Great. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. See you later. Bye now.